Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. That includes the Nelson. <laughs> A community of love. <laughs> okay. Um, well, we've arrived. We're here. Not church, but rather the Council of Calcedon. That's right. This is where it all. This is where it all goes down. Um, as as Mark was telling you last week, this is this is it. From this point on, uh, after after today, uh, whatever point you look at in church history, someone's going to disagree with you. Some Orthodox Christian will disagree with you about it. But up to this point, we're good. We're all brothers until 451. So, um, what we're concerned with today is the way in which we understand the fact that Christ is both God and man. Is, in fact, simultaneously fully God and fully man. There are two key concepts here. The concept of nature and the concept of person. I've decided not to dive into a uh, really specific and dazzling analysis of the original language um, of how these words were, how these concepts were expressed in Greek and the disagreements in Greek and how the Latin chose to translate that. We're going to skip over all that because I don't really think you can. <clears throat> so instead, here's a more, um, here's one that goes at the heart of the matter that isn't so based in the uh, historical claims of the moment, but rather uh, fits both that historical situation as well as all possible iterations of Christology, including contemporary ones. So nature, in this context, is that which all individuals of a species have in common. It is that by means of which they are all judged to be the same species. Thus, Peter and Paul both have human nature, or may be said to be human by nature, while Brownie and Bessie both have bovine nature, or may be said to be cows by nature. Person doesn't receive a strong definition for another century and a half, but in our period it stands for the individual, actually Peter or Paul, for instance. Another way of thinking this is that nature is what there is one of in God, in persons, what there are three of. That's the simplest way to put it. Whatever definition you want to put on them, nature describes the thing that God is one of, that God is one by, that the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and persons describes the fact of multiplicity, distinction within that unity. I'm not sure if you're aware, and I don't remember if it came up in our Trinitarian discussion or not, but the word Trinity is just a combination of tri, meaning three, and unity. So it's, it's Trinity expresses both the unity and the multiplicity of God. That's why the, the, the word was coined, <coughs> because we needed a word that, was, that could say both things simultaneously, three and one. So, it is noteworthy then that the claims of the Church concerning Christ form a complement to the claims of the Church concerning the Trinity. For in the Trinity there are three persons but one nature. In Christ there are two natures and only one person. It must be kept in mind that neither one of these cases, neither one of these cases, as, as explicated by the Church, is in accord with what we see in everyday life. These are both unusual cases in terms of the way all of the creatures around us are put together. Um, the Trinity might seem closest, 
but the fact that these three persons don't make three individuals is a decisive difference. Right? So if you just looked at it, you might think, well, okay, so <clears throat> the, I get that Jesus is not like us, because I've never met someone who was one person in two different natures at the same time. Right? But I feel like I've met three persons in one nature, namely Peter, Paul, and James. They're all humans, human nature, and they're three persons, so that seems kind of normal, right? Except that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit aren't three persons in the same way that Peter, Paul, and James are three persons, right? I mean, you're, you're all so deeply savvy in Trinitarian theology at this point that I don't even really need to say this out loud because you, you're practically theologians now, but um, just to reiterate it, they're three persons in such a way as to still be one and the same God. They don't just share divine nature, which would make them three actual gods. They are the same divine nature. They are the same God. That's not how Peter, Paul, and James are. I mean, they may be really good friends, and they may do everything together, right? Maybe they're cut from the same cloth, but they're still different cuttings from that cloth. They're separate individuals, separate, um, separate persons. So we say they're three humans, but we don't say they're three gods. So even, even the Trinity is not like what we see normally. There's nothing in the created order that images how this works in the Trinity or how it works in Christ perfectly. There are analogies, and uh, every analogy bases itself upon both similarity and dissimilarity. Right? So for every analogy someone gives you about the Trinity, it's kind of like this, or about Christology, it's kind of like this. Yes, of course, there's going to be a way in which is also very much not like this, <laughs> because otherwise it wouldn't be an analogy, it would be a definition. Okay, so just to, just to sort of situate how those two things relate to one another, and obviously you'll recall that we spent the majority of the class and the first part of the class talking about the Trinitarian side of that, and today we're going to wind up our discussion, which we started several weeks ago, about the Christology side of that. So, let's talk about heresies about Christ. Well, Christological errors tend to be, uh, of, to one, they tend to one of two extremes. On the one hand, they tend to create so much separation between his divine and human natures that it seems that they have no connection, or are, in fact, two different people. On the other hand, they tend towards pushing the natures so closely together that they get mingled or confused with one another. We have already seen those who separate the natures too greatly in Apollinarius and Nestorius. Today we should look at the other pole, the mingling of the natures. Oh, it won't be that bad. Alright, this guy's name is pronounced Eutyches. Eutyches. Eutyches was motivated by one simple intuition. Namely, that the body of Christ, uh, the body that Christ inhabits, is God's body. So it seems weird to Eutyches to think that God's body wouldn't be markedly different from Tom's body. Right? He seems like, well, you know, my body's different than your body. How much more different would God's body be from ours? I mean, that's got to be that's got to be a special, unique kind of thing, right? Not too similar to ours. So because of that, he ends up in the following position. Uh, he feels that the idea that Christ has two natures, one divine and one human, is unscriptural and contrary to the teaching of the fathers. This does not, in his view, mean that Christ is not born from Mary nor does it mean that he is not simultaneously fully human and fully divine. So, Eutyches is affirming that Christ is in fact historically born from Mary, and that Christ is fully human and fully divine, but that there's only one nature in Christ now, not two. 
However, he does deny that Christ is consubstantial with us. He's not of the same substance as us. He's fully human, but he's not like us. Uh, so he concedes that Christ was of two natures, emphasis on was, but interprets this to mean from two natures, which the Greek text would allow. The preposition could be translated of or, or from. Thus, he takes this to mean that Christ originated from two natures, but is now one. His claim is that there were two natures before the incarnation, and only one nature after. Right? He's not claiming, he's not claiming, which he was accused of claiming sometimes, that um, there was, that Christ's human nature existed before the divine word came down to it. A lot of folks in church history did push this view, it's called adoptionism, the idea that God adopted a particular human being and made him to be the Christ. Um, <clears throat> often this is claimed to have happened at, the, at Christ's baptism. They say that's what it was when the Holy Spirit came down, that's when the man Jesus became the Christ. Um, this is wrong. Don't believe this. But that's not what Eutyches is saying. His claim isn't that the human nature actually existed beforehand. He's just saying that logically, if you think about it in your head, you could make a distinction between the human nature that would ultimately come about to be Christ's nature and the divine nature. But then when, a, when the baby was actually born, those two things had become something else because there's only one nature left at that point. So these things follow. It, it follows that if Christ is fully human and fully divine, but in only one nature, then that nature must be a nature that is itself fully human and fully divine. Since, as we said earlier, one is human or divine or cow based on one's nature. Right. So what Eutyches has done here is by denying two natures in Christ, but continuing to assert the orthodox position that Christ is both fully human and fully divine, He's forcing us, philosophically, to have to say that Christ has one nature, and that one nature is human, fully human and fully divine. Okay. Now, there are two ways to understand this. The first is that humanity and divinity morph in Christ into something else, a new, never-before-seen nature, sort of a Captain Planet kind of image. Now, this is philosophically unsound, according to their philosophy. Um, Partly because, um, on their philosophical views, natures were not the kinds of things that could be changed, ever. Right? They're, like, they're like universals. And how do you change... You don't change chairness, okay? You just make different chairs. And they can be different from one another, and yet you, you can't change what it means to be chair. Right? That's just not the kind of thing that can ever be affected. It's... it's it's an eternal idea, it's really a necessary truth, and there's really nothing you can do about it, right? So the idea that the divine nature and the human nature, which are these two types of entities that are these universal necessary truths, would somehow be radically altered to make possible this divine man or this human God is, is ridiculous, philosophically. Furthermore, the divine nature can't change anyway, period. As we've talked about before, this is one of the major, major intuitions that they have, and it's a, it's a, it's a fundamental philosophical commitment that's not up for debate. If you, don't, if, if you don't like it, you want to talk about it, they don't want to talk to you about it. They want to talk about something else. So because of that, the divine nature has to always remain what it eternally was. So how is it going to change in such a way as to also be able to be, to make an individual count as fully human? That's, it's not going to make any sense, philosophically.
in addition to being philosophically unsound, it also runs the risk of identifying God and creation, the dangers of which we discussed last week. That's the most likely outcome, because everyone who's listening to this is going to say, yeah, but God, the divine nature can't change. So if the divine and the human nature have to somehow come together into a new thing, that new thing is going to have to be the divine nature, because that's, that has to remain what it is. You can't add to it, you can't subtract from it, and you can't fiddle with it, right? So ultimately, if you're, if you're looking at it from the standpoint of philosophy, it's really going to mean the human nature gets absorbed and ultimately destroyed within the divine nature, right? The, the eternal, simple sameness of the divine is going to just blot out all traces of the human if you try to squish those two natures together. Well, the other way to understand this is that humanity gets absorbed by the divine, but in such a way that it is not entirely absent, even though it no longer has a separate existence. Which, again, philosophically, I, I don't know how you would make a proof for that philosophically in this, in this philosophical milieu. I just, I just don't see how you could explain this in a way that would be satisfactory. But assuming you could, here are further dangers that you would then encounter. Uh, similar to when God and the creation are equated, the goodness of creation is not affirmed if it's merely something that must be reabsorbed. Right? And echoes of Plotinus in the background, right? Um, and then two, is Christ really our brother if his humanity is swallowed up by divinity? Does he then truly count as being of Adam's race? And if he is not of Adam's race, <clears throat> can he then act on our behalf in salvation? and be the second Adam. So this, is how the, this is how their theories of salvation worked along this. Is that Christ is able to do this for us because he was one of us. Right? We had to have someone who was a, a member of the affected race <clears throat> to make uh, retribution, satisfaction, um, recompense, sacrifice, whatever. It had to be one of us who did it. Right? But all of us were so um, weak because of sin, so unworthy, because of sin, and also, you know, so weak because of just being finite that even if I were not sinful and could therefore make satisfaction for myself, I don't have enough power or worth to do it for all of you as well. You know, I'd be good then, but you guys would still be in a lot of trouble. Right? So in order to be able to overcome the, the fact, on the one hand, that there's no perfect human, and on the other hand, that a, a perfect human wouldn't have been enough even to accomplish this work of salvation either. This person, who had to be one of us, also had to be God, because only God would have the power and the dignity to, to pull this off. It's, it's, it's like, you know, the, the cosmological hat trick, and, and only God can do it. So, um, but it's equally important that Christ be both God and man, and if you're in peril either one of those, then an important aspect of our salvation is going to fall apart. If he's not God, then he's saved and nobody else is. And if he's not man, then nobody's saved because no, nothing's been done for Adam's race yet. No one of us has yet stepped up to, um, you know, make the soteriological apology to God that needed to happen. So, so that's the question. Is if, if this humanity is not the type of humanity that we enjoy, is that fact going to disqualify Christ from the job that he came to do? Um, Kelly... Uh, you remember there were some books for this course that we recommended you read from. Um, I don't know if any of you still know what those books are, 
or anything, but um, if you were reading along uh, with this, uh, my apologies. I'm sure that it was like quite dense. But Kelly attempts to alleviate some of the blame that falls on Eutyches by saying that Eutyches was kind of an idiot. He was too trusting and not really aware of the consequences of what he was saying. Now, while it might be endearing to think of the misunderstood simple bumpkin out of his depth in such deep disputes, it is important not to lose the thread of the intuition Eutyches had. Because this, if he, whether he's an idiot or not isn't really to the purpose. Because I think that a lot of people have the same intuition that Eutyches had, right? Idiots and non-idiots. The idea that Christ is to be seen in terms of unity is orthodox, right? You have to think that. Eutyches has only misidentified the locus of that unity. He's saying that he's saying the unity has to be in the nature. There's got to be one nature, and so it's got to be a unity of these two natures that go into making up who Christ is. That, that's wrong. But many Christians today, following the same intuition of the one Christ, who is both divine and human, have tacitly switched back to something resembling a Eutychian understanding of Christ. I, can, I mean, I remember as, an, as a young evangelical coming into contact with Chalcedon for the first time, it seemed wrong to me. I, I, I felt a sadness that the church had chosen to go this direction rather than in the other direction. Because I thought, well, just I've never thought of Christ as having two natures. I mean, yeah, he's, he's, he's God and he's man, but he's just, you know, he's just the one dude, you know? And dude, right? Um, and then as I began to understand more what was at stake and to, to realize that it's, it's really, really difficult, that's me being charitable, I kind of think it's impossible, to give a, a, a consistent account of what it would look like for Christ to have one nature that avoids every type of misunderstanding about Christ or every type of theological inconvenience, right? It's, I'm going to ask you to take my word on that, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's really, really quite difficult to pull this off, um, whereas it's quite easy to go the two natures route, which the church ultimately went, right? And what's at stake here is, is understanding that if, because human nature is a universal, right, if you change human nature, you change every instance of human nature, okay? So if human nature became something radically different, for example, human nature, Christianity has this one counterexample to philosophy. Philosophy says universals are, are undamaged. They can never be changed. Christianity says, we know one time this happened. It was called the fall, right? From that point on, human nature was damaged. And so before that, what it meant to be a human was to have these, probably, these perfectly functioning cognitive powers, possibly perfect control over your sexual appetite, um, and, you know, this intimate, natural communion with God, meaning a communion with God by nature, that by virtue of being the kind of creature you were, God was present to you in a powerful and immediate kind of way, <coughs> as much as is possible for, for a creature. Once Adam, once Adam takes a bite from that apple, all of that's changed, right? What it means to be human has now completely changed, okay? So if what, if, if what it means to be human changes again in Christ, that means that salvation is self-acting. You don't have to believe in Christ. You don't have to respond in faith. You don't have to be moved by the Holy Spirit. By virtue of being human, you will be all that Christ was as a man. 
that's what would follow philosophically from saying that human nature were changed. Okay. We do want to say that Christ recreates human nature, but it can't be in that way. It can't be self-acting like that, right? It's not the case that all humans born into the world are of a radically different sort now that there's been a God-man. Rather, there's a new reality that's coming that we participate in in a preliminary fashion now. And so Christ has opened the door to heaven, but he hasn't just flipped a switch and turned all of earth into heaven. That's not where we are in the story right now. And we don't believe that's what's going to happen ultimately because we believe there are going to be some humans who don't make it, right? And so those guys didn't get the benefit. So there has to be a more nuanced understanding of what's going on here. And that's what, that's what Eutyches is missing, and that's why Kelly thinks he's kind of an idiot because he just doesn't see all of what's at stake. He's got this great idea. He's got this very pious vision of Christ, but he doesn't understand the ways in which he's twisting and wrenching Christian doctrine to, to pull it off. And that, that, to me, is very, rings very true to the type of experience that I've had in some churches where theology is less intentionally dealt with. You know, where theology means having the gospel message right, that you have the, mess, the salvation story right. That's a good starting point, right? But if you don't think beyond that, then you can get into all sorts of other inconveniences. This is your first interactive point. <laughs> well, I, I was going to ask you what other lines of reasoning are there out there? We're kind of now on the Presbyterian television and exposed to all these things. And how does that affect your view of salvation? Uh, lines of reasoning concerning. Um, you tick in the class, if you will. Uh, so you mean this, this, would do other folks have a different take on Eutyches, or could those people make, can other people make this work? Is that the idea? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's 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 a little what I was trying to get at with that example of of my encounter with Chalcedonian Christology and it, and it feeling wrong to me because I had this sense of um, my my sort of unreflective, unexamined image of Christ was that uh, was was based upon the Gospels, and so it's based upon this idea of human encounter. In the Gospels, you don't encounter Christ in his metaphysical makeup, right? You encounter Christ as a living, acting human being walking among us. That's why the scandal of Christ's divinity is so difficult to accept, um, because if you talk to him, he seemed like a, a dude. You know, he seemed like one of us. God isn't a dude. Right? He's above all that. He's above dudeness. But when you talk to Christ, it seems like, you know, he's a, he's a really, especially holy man and a, and, a, and a great teacher. And there's obviously something going on with him. He's touched by God in a certain way. But if you talk to him, you feel like he just talked to a man. Right? And that's, the, that's what you see acting in the Gospels. And so, starting from that point, right, I learned and I believed and I affirmed that this man was also God. But I'm thinking that in terms of, you know, I'm not thinking about what does that mean in terms of how I have to understand the philosophy of it, I'm just thinking, this is one man who also happens to be God. And so I know that before the manger, well, let's say actually before, before the Annunciation, because he didn't just pop into the manger, right? Mary carried him around for nine months before that. So before the Annunciation, this, this individual was God reigning heaven and sustaining creation from no place, because God is in a place. Um, after the Annunciation, this individual, 
who also by identity was the same person who had been ruling creation and sustaining it before, is now a baby, a, a fetus, inside of the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And then after the crucifixion, this person who was crucified and rose again, ascends to heaven and resumes his duties as the ruler of all creation, human body intact, right? So, how many natures does that kind of person have? Well, to me, in my mind, it kind of sounded like one. Because at every point, he's one dude, right? And he goes through this change as he goes along, but, and, and he's, always, he was, he's always God, and now he's God and he's man, but, it, it, you know, I could, I could feel the, the force of, well, it's some new thing. He's unique, and he's not like us. I, I, I don't have to look very far in my experience to realize that I'm not like Jesus, right? I've got wonderful people around me to remind me that I'm not like Jesus in case I do forget, <laughs> right? So it, it, it seems very compelling and logical to say that he's got this, he's something else, something special, still something one, and something really, really different than what we are. And, and to me, from the standpoint of piety, that doesn't create any problems. I'm still affirming the full humanity and the full divinity of Christ, right? And I'm still affirming Christ's saving work and the uniqueness of that and all that's required you know, beyond the fact of crucifixion, the working of the Holy Spirit and the heart and all of that, to make that effective, so where's the problem? The problem arises if I want to be consistent. The problem arises when I try to explain what the nature of God is, when I try to fit that back into the Trinity, when I try to um, avoid or respond to even uh, very specific philosophical questions that folks around me are going to ask. I might think that I don't have to be philosophical to be a Christian, but if even one person in my world disagrees with me about that, then these questions have to be answered, because that person has a right to investigate and needs answers. Right. So, so that's, that's, that's what, I'm, what I'm kind of trying to describe, is that in this sort of place where theology becomes more uh, just about the gospel story, just about the salvation message, um, a Eutychia in Christ fits in okay, because you don't go far enough into theology to encounter the problems that, uh, that it brings up. The problem is the people you're witnessing to, the folks who are, whom you're con who you are converting to Christianity, in fact, there's nothing to stop them from going on to ask those questions. And if they don't have a more solid foundation than that, when that comes up, that becomes a challenge to their faith. That makes them think, oh my gosh, this actually doesn't cohere logically. I have to either believe that theology doesn't make logical sense, and I just have to believe it, even though it's irrational. Or, I have to choose to remain a rational person and jettison theology and jettison my belief. Right? Which is not true. It's a false choice. But um, it's a choice that people can be driven to when, the, when the, the understanding of the person of Christ is limited to something so basic as the intuition that drives Eutychius. Right? Uh, certainly. Right, but I, the, the, one of the things the church has longed to assert through the centuries is that just because God is beyond our human capacity to understand does not mean that God is contrary to logic, right? God is, God is the God of all truth, and as such, while we may not understand it, and while it may seem like contradiction to us, it can't be, actually, um, because contradiction is contrary to the type of unity we assert about God, um, and therefore wouldn't be a, a truth about God, 
Um, but also, it, it's a function of our inability to understand how the whole thing works. Um, and so what we go for is not complete understanding in theology, comprehensive understanding, you know, even you, you could say even scientific understanding, which is uh, this, this sense of you can, you can look at, pick the object up and look at it from all different sides, you can do tests on it and really, really get a handle on it, right? That's not what we're going for. But what we're going for is a type of coherence that allows us to believe that if we understood enough, we would see how the whole thing fits together. And that's one of our major indicators that we're going off in left field when we start coming up with things that are radically contrary to other parts of the system. Then we, we think, okay, maybe we're pushing this too hard in human directions and not listening enough to the Word of God. Calvert. Yeah, um, I was just wondering, in light of that brief conversation with a couple different people, um, what, what does this do to the idea of speculation? Mm. Speaking beyond that, when people are trying to assert theological premises that what we do have in Revelation mm -hmm. uh, can't answer or doesn't answer or because it, it seems to me the temptation mm -hmm. uh, is where we can't find the answer where we don't like the mystery right. we begin to speculate right. and create realms that perhaps may not be reflective of God's other categories that are beyond us right. Right. Uh, so I just wonder if you could see that at least two things um, the first is to bring back the distinction that we've made earlier in this course about uh, between doctrine and dogma, right? Speculation is always in the realm of doctrine and never in the realm of dogma, which all of your theology about angels, about what heaven will be like, all of these things fall under the realm of speculation, right? Y it can't even be said that from the book of Revelation we're given any sort of concrete knowledge of what heaven will be like. That might be a very literal picture, and it, and it might not, but it's not enough to build theological doctrine on. We, do, we, we, we haven't been told that, right? It doesn't mean you can't think about what heaven will be like and be comforted by that. It doesn't mean you might not be right, but you can't make other people believe it. You can't require other people to believe it. You can't hold it so firmly in your heart that you get offended when other people disagree with you because that's not the kind of thing about which God has deigned to give us um, specific knowledge in the way that he has about salvation and about Christ, right, and about the Trinity. So that's, that's, that's one thing we say about speculation is it's always in that realm of, uh, not quite personal preference, if you will, but in that realm where grace must be offered and accepted one to another among Christians. We have to be very, very gracious in the realm of theological speculation. And it's really important, it's, you know, it's really important to recognize what's speculation and what's not. You've met people, right, who have these very well-developed theories of angels, right, and they're really, they really need you to believe that too, right? They don't understand that that's in the realm of speculation, and therefore they're not being sinful, not doing something wrong. They may not even be wrong in what they think about them, but they have to be very gracious with others. Another thing is that it has to be a criterion in your theological speculation if you're going to engage in this. Some, some would say you shouldn't. Luther said you shouldn't, right? But if you're going to engage in theological speculation, I do, it's got to be a major consideration that nothing you say in the realm of speculation be contradictory to anything that's true in the realm of dogma, anything that we have to believe. It's at the core of the Christian faith, right? It, it also can't be contradictory to anything in the scriptures, right? So even if there's not a specific dogma you can pull out of it, right, you can't contradict the scriptures in your speculation. It ought to be consonant with the way the church has read the scriptures through the years, right? And then... Above all of that, 
not only should it not be contradictory to it, it should be illuminative of it. If you're speculating and the results of your speculation don't produce any positive fruit for um, a deeper understanding or at least a, a deeper sense of worship towards that which is central about the Christian faith, then you're probably going off into what might be called vain or fruitless speculation, right? Because everything that, you know, the gospel, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast, which works through the entire dough. Everything that touches the life of God is enlivened. It comes alive. And so if your speculation is touching upon something about the truth of the divine, it's going to catch on fire. It's going to come alive. And you're going to understand gospel proclamation better. Right? And you're going to understand living in community better. And you're going to understand loving one another and the body of Christ on the altar better. Right? If your speculations aren't feeding back into that, if they're, if, if they're helping you come up with these wonderfully complex systems, they require flowcharts and things like that, it, it's a good sign that you're probably headed off down your own mental pathways and that you're not actually seeing deeper into the mysteries of God. Right? Well, I, I firmly believe that mystery is not the kind of thing that, that, that's not the place where reason stops. You don't come to mystery and, and, and find a roadblock that says, you know, reason may not enter here. And then you, you, you know that you only go past that point in worship and belief. To me, that view of mystery is, is, is too small, makes God's being too small. It, it, makes, it makes it seem as if God is threatened by our questions, which I don't think is true. Mystery is the thing that no matter how much you learn about it, no matter how much you ask about it, there's always so much more that you're never going to get to the end of it. Mystery, far from locking reason out, is the part where reason is invited into the vastness of God. But there is a, there is a gate there, there is a bar, and that gate is humility. Mystery says, reason, you may not enter here unless you enter in humility, because here you are not the master. Here you are the student. You are the visitor. You're the guest. And when you really, when you enter into a space of mystery with your reason in that way, you become aware that the entire universe is like that, that reason was never the master, that it was always a guest graciously invited in to this larger space, right? Um, so. That's much broader, there's much broader scope there, right? I mean, the speculation, the doctrine, that's like the big, and the dogma is like this. Yeah, that's right. right? That's so, right. I mean, a lot of these things that you struggle with, yeah. you're going to struggle with them, but there's this little, you know, the part you shouldn't be struggling with is much smaller, right? That's absolutely right, yeah. The, the, the Christian message is, is specific, it's unique, it's compact, and it's simple. It's counterintuitive. It's revolutionary. It'll turn, it'll turn your world upside down and inside out. But it's simple. That's why it, it, it's written in a Greek that is so dumbed down as to almost not even read like Greek. Right? I mean, it's, it's, you read it and you're like, except, unless you're reading something written by Luke, it doesn't even feel like you're reading Greek. Right? It's so easy. You could learn it in a very short course. You should look for one to take. <laughs> but, and, it, and for that reason, it's highly translatable because all the things that are unique and specific about Greek that would make it greater, you know, make the New Testament so translatable into Latin and very poorly translatable into modern Romance languages or modern Germanic languages or, God forbid, modern African languages, right? All those things are completely absent from the New Testament. It's, it's, 
as one who's spent a lot of time in classical languages, I come to the New Testament, you know, I'm, I'm ready to work, right? I've done my homework, and I've read my Plato, and I've read my Homer, and now I'm ready to, like, really dig in. And I get there, and I'm like, this is like Dr. Seuss. You know, what's going on? And it's, and it's, it's almost like it's written in, this, in no language at all, because that allows it to be translated into any language at all, quite simply, right? It's, it's a powerful, amazing thing. And, and, and if, you, if, if you have enough knowledge of Greek besides just biblical Greek to, to get over the weirdness of Greek itself, it, it just screams at you from every page how translatable this text is to other languages. The Old Testament isn't like that. The Old Testament is very Hebrew. It's so specifically Hebrew. What it means to be Hebrew is what the Old Testament is. I mean, it's, it, and, it's, and there are all kinds of translation problems and issues with the language of the Old Testament. Why? Because that's preparation. Right, but the message itself, what God has to say to man, he delivers in such a way that it can be taken to the farthest corners of the world by the most uneducated folks whatsoever. Right? And in all of our sophistication, you know, we go to, we're, we're a church that serves Yale University, and our pastor preaches three-hour sermons that are, you know, rife with all this ex-Jesus, and blah. well, that's great, and that's wonderful, at least parts of it are great, but, you know... <laughs> But we can't forget that this is a simple gospel that we serve and that we have to give. That our message is ultimately quite simple. It's Jesus for the nations. Right? Um, so that's exactly right. The, the, the dogmas of the Christian faith are going to be, are gonna be, it's going to be a very tightly contained realm there. Um, and over 2,000 years, we've, we've gotten a lot of doctrinal accretions. I'm not in any way against that. I mean, that's, that's why I spend my days, I'm, I'm very blessed to spend my days living in that realm of, of all the doctrines and the ways that we think about different things. But, um, but we must remember that the heart of the message is, is quite compact and that that's the basis of our fellowship one with another is not our doctrinal commonality but our dogmatic commonality. If we really commit to that, then we have the basis for a fellowship with other believers that is untouchable. Right. What are we doing? This isn't what we're talking, supposed to be talking about. <laughs> Emily. Can I come around? Um, no. <laughs> that was a question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, Christ, two natures, I mean, that's, Christ doesn't change because Christ is a, is a person of God, so Christ always has two natures. No. And that's and that then that and that leads us wonderfully into okay. our next point. Thank you, Emily. <laughs> Question: Does so Christ doesn't change because Christ is one of the persons of the Trinity, and God doesn't change, and God, Christ is fully God, so Christ always had two persons. Oh no, not so much. Yes, that's correct. Human experience is intimately tied up in change. You can't be human without being subject to change. Right, this is exactly, yes, good job, ladies, <laughs> driving us home. Next, next year, Sunday school class will be taught by Emily and Molly. <laughs> It'll be much better. <laughs> the handouts will be shorter, the readings will be easier, and you'll understand more. <laughs> okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plow right into the Orthodox response then because I think that's exactly where they're, where they're leading us. As I just hinted at, and as Emily and Molly also just hinted at, Orthodoxy had to properly locate where the union and where the distinction lay in Christ. When unity was not strongly enough emphasized, there seemed to be two persons, one divine and one human. That was Nestorius. When unity was asserted of the natures, it seemed to reduce the natures to one another. And that, then you get the kind of problem that Emily just brought up. Say, well, so Christ is God, and God is eternally and always what God was. Therefore, Christ is eternally and always what Christ is. Therefore, 
Christ was eternally and always human, right? And that's, that's, that's a nature confusion, right? Because that's attributing something to Christ, which is true of one of Christ's natures, right? So orthodoxy is going to say the union, the, uh, it's not a union of two natures that makes up Christ in the sense of a mushing together of them, right? But rather it's a union of the two natures in the person of Christ. To make a distinction between the divine nature by which Christ is, you know, which is itself unchangeable and immutable, and the person of Christ which has that nature, which is not in every way identical with that nature, and so is capable of change. Right? So, Christ, unlike Peter, has one nature, sorry, Christ is unlike Peter, who has one nature and one person. Christ is also unlike Sam the Griffin, who is not one animal in two natures, lion and eagle, but rather one animal out of two natures, lion and eagle. Sam's nature is not lion nature and eagle nature. Sam's nature is griffin nature. Okay, it's its own thing, which is singular. And this is a fair approximation of what Eutyches was claiming, right? He was, he, was, he was claiming that some third nature came about by this squishing together of divine and human. And as we give a different name to griffin, so we could give a different name to this third nature theoretically, right? And so it almost seems not right to call that nature divine nature because it's not really. It's, it's divine nature mixed in with some other stuff. That's, that, that, that picture we don't want. Rather, in Christ... The divine and human natures each remain what they are and function as they normally do. That is, they cause an individual to express certain characteristics, omnipotence and omniscience for the divine, body and soul for the human, for example. However, in this case, both natures are qualifying one and the same individual. Okay? Thus, the union is called a hypostatic or personal union. It is a union of the strongest sort, for the unity of an individual is very self-evident. Yet it also allows for the real distinction of the natures. It also motivates the communication of idioms, for the subject of all statements about the incarnate one is the person whose name is Jesus and who is the Christ. Therefore, God suffered is easily understood to be shorthand for Jesus who is God suffered. Right? But he, he wasn't as God, he wasn't able to suffer. But as man, he was able to suffer, right? And so, the human nature in Christ, his human body, his human soul, experiences the suffering of abandonment, death on a cross. The divine nature doesn't experience that suffering, being incapable of it, but it's not absent from that suffering either, because it's united to the person who is doing that suffering, right? So, the, the danger... The danger we have with Christology is that we tend to, if we're going to draw Christ, we tend to draw a circle and say this is the incarnate word and then draw a tag on it and say that's the human nature which is sort of stuck onto it, right? That's not the right picture. Another danger would be to draw a human nature and say this is the man Jesus and then draw a little tag and say that's the divine nature which somehow gets attached to that as well. That's also not the right picture. The right thing to do is to draw a circle, which is the person of Christ, and then to draw two lines, and then two more connecting circles, one of which is the, the divine nature, and one of which is the human nature. 
to make it clear that there's this person who has both of these natures, right? And so, as divine, because he's got a line connecting him to that, he can, he knows everything there is to know, he has all power, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him because it's rightly his, right? As human, he can suffer, he can weep for a dead friend, he can be killed, right? But because these two things were joined in his person, they're really, truly, inseparably joined, joined in the person of the one Savior, the one subject of all statements about salvation and about the person of Christ. Because of that, these natures have intercourse with one another. God and man meet in Jesus in such a way that God can judge man and redeem man without having to swallow man up or without being contaminated, as the ancients would say, by that humanity. Right? It brings them as close as possible together without separating them. This is, this is as against all of the philosophical presuppositions of their day as it is against all of those of our day. It is, it is in the best interest of those who would not see the gospel advanced, be they human or fallen angelic, that our notions of unity be such that unity is only internal, that something has to, be, has, has to get sucked into something else in order to be one with it and has to therefore change the character of that thing, like Kool-Aid, right? You put the packet in the water, and you don't have, like, you know, water on the bottom and Kool-Aid mixed on top. That'd be gross. You don't want that, right? They need to mix together, and then you have it. Or, like, a cake. You put all the ingredients in, and they become something surprisingly and amazingly different, right? Eating just eggs and flour doesn't sound very exciting, but you bake them all up, and all of a sudden, it's this amazing, wonderful confection. That's the way that we're encouraged to think about unity because that kind of unity will make no sense out of the, out of the Incarnation. It'll, it'll be a muddy mess, right? But God is concerned that we understand a different concept of unity. Think about marriage, right? Which I do a lot these days. God doesn't want two to become one in such a way that they're indistinguishable from one another, in such a way that all difference is leveled and you have one new homogenous thing, right? you don't want to be Kool-Aid in marriage. Right? But it's not oil and water either. There has to be a different paradigm of unity that allows you to see how two things can be joined together so closely that it's right to call them one. That there, they, there is one flesh now. Right? And that's such an amazing statement that it's not just, you know, one spirit we'd be more, more okay with. One flesh, that That'll keep you up at night, in a good way. Right? Um, so there has to be another model for thinking of unity that allows you to see those things being so close, but without the destruction or e without, in, without losing the ability to affirm the goodness of both of those things separately. Go ahead. When uh, Jesus is incarnate in the body of the Virgin Mary, is mm -hmm. that when he became human? That's correct. But, but so before the, before the Annunciation, Jesus was God, the second person of the Trinity, and that was cool. And then at the Annunciation, in addition to being God, he also became man. Well, in the, in the Old Testament, they talk about, you know, God, or it seems like they're talking about God, who are various Old Testament figures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's not Jesus. It may be Jesus, but it's not, he's not in a human nature yet. If it is, he's just appearing as if he's in a human nature. Right. Um, but before the, before the Annunciation... He doesn't have it, okay? 
again, understand we're talking about logic here because Jesus, apart from his human nature, doesn't exist in time at all, so there is no before and after for him. And there's that wonderfully teasing line of the Lamb of God, Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world, right? But, but there's some rhetoric in there, right? right? The idea is that there's a, there's, a, there's a point where God enters history in a unique way. And in order to enter history, he takes on a historical nature, a nature that is inextricably bound by change, because that's what it means to live in history, right? And, and that is the highest glory of the creature. It's the greatest, it's the greatest thing God could have done for us, right? Yes? Right. Uh, this is when we note it down. Right here. Um, it, it, it wasn't... <laughs> You're on the cutting edge right now. This is where theology happens. Um, the, the question of... The, the question of Christ's relationship with humanity came up very early, and um, I have artificially done you a disservice because I, I kind of have, have pushed some of those early questions about... Christ's identity to the side in order to tell this story of how the understanding of the Trinity developed and then Christology was fully formalized after that. But, but these discussions were going on simultaneously and very early on there was this question of Christ's relation to his human nature. Some claimed that he didn't actually have, he wasn't actually human even in the incarnation, he only appeared to be, called docetus. Um, they were ruled out. Uh, the adoptionists claimed that there was an actual living, breathing human being who, in his own right, who was later on assumed by God, like an ad probably an adult male who was taken up to be the Christ. That was ruled out. Um, but, um, but the question as to, you know, saying, okay, well, Orthodox understanding of Christology, but how long was he this human? That question wasn't one that arose in, a, in an urgent way for the church. Partly because it sort of needed this understanding that we have here to really be motivated in a, in a strong way. But once we got to this, in order to get to this point, we had to focus so intently on what it meant for Christ to be God that um, it would all kind of solve it at the same time. Right? One of Eutyches' claims had been that before the incarnation, there was a dis distinguishable, there was the divine nature and there was a theoretical human nature, which would ultimately become that of Jesus. And then those two things fused into a, a third nature after the incarnation. All right. So partly in, in responding to that, we had to already be saying, you know, the humanity comes about at a certain point in time for Christ. It's not who Christ eternally and always was. Another way to think about this is that whatever Christ was eternally, Christ, whatever Christ is eternally, Christ is necessarily. And nothing about the human nature, including its very existence, is necessary. Right? Human nature only exists because God wills human nature to exist, whereas God exists necessarily. Right? And so if Christ were eternally human, that would elevate humanity into a, a sort of co-eternity with God, which is, is all kinds of theological bad.
<laughs> yeah. So, I know there's no now with God, but you know, Christ ascended and body is born. Mm -hmm. So now, if he still has, does he have a human nature? Yes. He certainly has a human nature. The human nature is not outside of time. So for Christ's human body, there's still time going on. Outside of time, at one point, God, Christ, assumed the human nature, and from now on, keeps the human nature. That's right, that's right. And so the person of Christ is both outside of time and in time at the same time. <laughs> but, and, 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 you know, it, it's... Remember that, that time, is not, time is no place, and so there's not a spatial problem here. Right? I could be in the same place and be outside of time, right? Um, might create problems for you guys if, my, if I had a body that could block you. But, um, you know, in the, in the same way that Christ's body can be all over the world and not be separated from Christ either, because God is in no time and in no place. But we do recognize in theology, we recognize a logical before and after for God, which is not to say that there actually was a before and after, but to say that, you know, something in the order of explanation, we say, if you're thinking about how things connect to one another and, and causally, you can see a sort of priority. For example, if the father begets the son, then the father is prior to the son logically, even though the father isn't actually prior to the son. They both existed from all eternity. And there wasn't, there wasn't a moment in eternity past when there was father and no son. There's always been father and son, right? But there's, there's a logical priority that attaches to the father over the son on that. That, that helps us to think about God outside of time a little bit. Um, it really just lets us get to sleep at night because, as you say, you get boggled very quickly and then, you know, that just ruins your day. You're just walking around boggled. You're like, well, great. <laughs> it's only 9 o'clock and I've already, my mind's been blown, so, you know, what am I going to do? <laughs> yeah? Isn't his um, taking on a, um, a human body a part of the groundwork for our adoption? I mean, he ascended back right. to heaven and said we're going to fall. That's right, because, because Christ takes on, because, because God assumes humanity, because God takes humanity to God's self in the most intimate, imaginable way. Right? And that's got to be our challenge coming out of this, is to understand how, how this union that we see in Christ of the two natures is the most intimate type of union. It wouldn't be more intimate if it were Plotinian, where everything gets reabsorbed into the one. That's, there's no union where there's not distinction. Right. And so this is the closest imaginable type of union, and that's our paradigm for marriage. But anyway, because God decides to unite God's self to man in this most intimate of ways, therefore, you know, because he did it once with Christ, therefore the door is open for God to draw all men unto himself in a very intimate way. It won't be as intimate as Christ. We're not going to get united to the person of God. We've already got our own persons, and so that would be in inconvenient. Um, but still, there's, a, there's, there's now this highway of, of, of closeness, of proximity open between God and man that wasn't open before, even, even with Adam. Right? For all of Adam's glory, Adam couldn't claim that he belonged to a race that was united to the person of God, just a race that was made by the hand of God and specially favored by God. Right? So the work of redemption, in the work of redemption, God shows an aesthetic character. To quote Mako, he's lavish. He's extravagant. He doesn't just fix what was broken. He makes it way better than it was before. Right? Because of that, some have said that it was always God's plan to be united to human nature. That question lies outside of our period. That's a future question. Um, 
whatever you say to that, though, the truth of what happened in God's concrete work of salvation as a response to human sin is beautiful. It's beautiful. Okay, well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your will towards us, that you, that you willed our creation, that you uphold your word of creation, your judgment that we are good in all of your dealings with us, and that you have gone to such excessive pains to not only restore us to fellowship with you, but to convey upon us an even greater honor than, than we certainly could ever have hoped for or imagined. Lord, we pray that we pray that your, your, your son would, that his saving work would just flow over the sins in our lives and flow to the heart of that sin, to that stain in our heart, and that the transformation of human nature would begin even now in us, Lord, that, you would, that your work of sanctifying and renewing and elevating human nature would, would be ever more real in our lives day to day as we grow in your spirit. We pray, Father, by that spirit and in that spirit that you would be with us in worship today, that you would free us to have visions of your glory, to hear your word preached faithfully, to understand the truths of the gospel, to understand the joyous service into which we've been called, and to have a heart to go out and share the news of that service with others. We ask all of these things in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.